This is a civil action. Brian Cabotec, along with Sean Karnikian from Cabotec LLP, we're a plaintiff's firm in downtown Los Angeles, handling all different types of plaintiff's cases, and we bring these podcasts to you on a regular basis to update you on the law and cases that have come down to give you a 20 to 30 minute brief each week on recent cases and how they may affect your practice, particularly if you're a plaintiff's lawyer. So today we have five cases that we're going to talk about. One of them is about juror misconduct and the collateral source rule. Then we're going to talk about forum selection clauses and employment contracts and a new statute that is actually pretty favorable to plaintiffs. Uh, Then we're going to talk about a case which discussed uh, two issues of first impression regarding the five-year rule and the death knell doctrine. Then we're going to talk about uninsured motorist coverage in the context of an umbrella policy. And lastly, we're going to talk about PAGA and claim splitting. So remember, if you have any questions about these cases that we cover today or generally have any types of cases you'd like us to cover, you can reach out to us. We're always happy to talk to you. We're always happy to have a conversation. And we're obviously able to help you with your cases. And before we get into the first case, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. And on, I believe you can rate them and review them on Apple Podcasts. So we'd appreciate the feedback. All right. Our first case today is Stokes versus Martin Frederick Mushinsky, if I pronounce that correctly. Uh, this is a case that came out of the 2nd uh, Appellate District, Division 8 of the 2nd DCA, Court of Appeal, State of California. And this case starts with a typical personal injury case that went to a verdict. The plaintiff didn't get a great result, and the plaintiff appealed. And the appeal dealt with two distinct issues. We'll talk about them um, one at a time. The first is a question about juror misconduct. So it's an interesting discussion about what constitutes juror misconduct, and particularly what discretion the court has in making determinations with respect to juror misconduct. In this case, you had a juror who ultimately became the foreperson, and you have questions about whether or not the juror was asked questions about lawsuits where he had been a party or a defendant to a lawsuit. And it seems clear from the record that he had been a party to the lawsuit, but he didn't explained to anybody that he'd been a party. He didn't disclose that he'd been a party to two separate lawsuits. So the analysis when it comes to juror misconduct, it's a three-step analysis. First is whether there's any evidence in the form of affidavits in support of uh, the motion for a new trial based on misconduct. Then the court looks at whether evidence establishes misconduct. And then the court looks at whether or not that misconduct was prejudicial. Here, I think the Court of Appeal made clear that this fails in the second prong. So there's no question here that this uh, foreperson, who was, I believe, juror number 11, was involved in two prior lawsuits, and this is something he did not disclose. Um, But the Court of Appeal said, first of all, the second lawsuit that he was allegedly involved in— There was no evidence that he had actually been served. served. There's no evidence that he had actually been served. He was an officer at what looks to be a hospital or a medical corporation, and lawsuits could have been an ordinary course of life there, and he wasn't aware that he was named as a defendant or even served in the second lawsuit. And in the first lawsuit, I think there was just some genuine question raised about whether or not he knew he was even a party to the lawsuit. So ultimately, the Court of Appeals said it doesn't look like his concealment, even if we want to call it that, was intentional. And that's kind of the linchpin of this issue. Was it intentional? And he was never even directly asked, Mr. Foreman, were you ever involved in the I think they also went out of their way to support the trial judge. There was talk in the opinion about the question of whether or not the juror was ever directly asked about any prior lawsuit. So good practice tip. 
if you're trying cases, be sure you have questions that you specifically ask jurors about. And they also focused on the fact that this was a subsequent panel. This juror came out of a subsequent panel of jurors and that this particular juror wasn't specifically asked. We all have a tendency in trial to get up there with the third or fourth or fifth pack of jurors and say, you've heard all these other questions. Is anything you want to answer yes or no? And of course, those people are the ones that typically end up being your jurors. So if you have questions that are very specific and important to you, ask the juror the question because they zeroed in on that. But I also thought, Sean, that they went out of their way in this opinion to support the trial judge and to find that there was no uh, intentional juror misconduct. And aside from the juror misconduct question, another thing about this opinion that kind of rubbed me the wrong way was the Court of Appeals finding on the issue of collateral source. So the collateral source rule is basically um, any evidence of other sources of compensation for a party's injuries or treatment in the PI context are inadmissible. Here, uh, one of the arguments that plaintiff was making is that any mention of Kaiser, and there was around 400, almost 400 mentions of Kaiser in the record, um, indicated to the jury that this plaintiff has insurance, had insurance, had some other source of money. Yeah, but the problem with that is you're not going to keep that out in your typical case because the person was treated with Kaiser, so the, the juror's going to know. And the question is, and it's not clear from this record, were they given a limiting instruction? Were they told not to consider that? Because I don't know how you keep it out. I'll tell you what bothered me more was the fact that the court glossed over questions about Medicare. So Medicare was specifically asked in the following te- context. Question, Mr. Stokes is 65 years old. Answer, that's my understanding, yes. Question, he's eligible for Medicare. Objection, collateral source rule, overruled. Can we have a sidebar? No. So it looked to me like that was completely impermissible. There should have immediately been a a sustaining of that objection and that the court should have instructed the juror. So I do have problems with this decision. I I wonder how much of this was lawyer-driven as opposed to just good sense. You know, sometimes cases like this make bad law, but I did not like that part of the decision at all. I agree with you, Sean. I'd agree as well. Okay, so next we're going to talk about the, a case called Rise Claim Solutions versus Superior Court. This came out of Contra Costa County, and it is regarding a uh, forum selection clause in an uh, employment agreement. Right, so before we get into the facts of this case, Everybody needs to understand that the law was changed effective January 1st, 2017. A new labor code section was added that says you can never have a forum selection clause in an employment contract with a California employee. So you can't, after January 1st, 2017, require an employee to enter into an employment contract with you, the employer, that says you'll litigate your cases in Alaska or Delaware or Florida or wherever they seem to find a favorable fora for the the lawsuit. Can't do that. Um, And I think what's key here is the timing of what what this statute covers. So the plain language of the statute is that that rule applies to agreements, quote, entered into, modified, or extended on or after January 1st, 2017, end quote. Um, So in this case, the agreement was originally signed uh, by this individual in, I believe, 2014. And his employment was terminated in 2017. And it renewed by uh, operation every year on the anniversary, which happened to be May. So every May, it would renew for a new term. So it renewed for a new term in May of 2016, 
and the termination occurred about 45 days before it would have been renewed for a new term. That's right. In 2017. So that's when the renewal occurred. So the argument that the plaintiff made was, uh, listen, because it even it hadn't renewed yet, it was in 2017 that I got terminated. So I should get the benefit of this forum selection clause prohibition. And the court said, we see where there's an ambiguity there, but we think the statute's clear, and we think the statute means that it have to either been entered into, modified, or extended on or after January 1st, 2017. So the Court of Appeals sent this back to the trial court and vacated its order. And, and said that as a matter of law, it had not renewed uh, uh, in 2017 yet, so the Forum Selection Clause applied. Uh, next, we're going to talk about a, the five-year rule and the death knell doctrine. Yeah, this is um, really interesting stuff because I've seen a number of cases coming down lately from the courts of appeal upholding the five-year rule, and that's something that every single person has to be careful about. Particularly, I've seen a trend that the more complex your case is, the more likely you're going to be bucking up against the five-year rule. Now, the obvious easy solution to that is enter into stipulation if the other side will agree to extend the five-year rule and do it early enough because if you're coming right up against the five-year rule, the defense is never going to agree. This case concerns the interplay between the five-year rule and the death knell doctrine. By the way, the case name is Angela Rell versus Pacific Bell Mobile Oh, Service. I guess we should tell people that. Huh? Yeah, we should probably tell them the name. Brian. Is that your fault this time? Do you think that's a good idea? No, I think it was your, your fault because you started talking about it. Uh, but do you remember Pacific Bell? Remember Pacific Bell? I knew him. Well, Pacific Bell was the predecessor to Singular, which ultimately became, I believe, AT&T. So this is a case regarding... um, Which has absolutely no relevance to this case facts at all. Well, I think that the relevance is that this is an old case. It was filed in originally, I believe, 2003. Is that correct? Maybe. Well, it comes into play It was filed a long time ago. So... The death knell doctrine is something that's unique to class actions, and it basically says that an order which uh, allows the plaintiff to pursue individual claims but prevents him from pursuing the class claims um, is treated as final judgment, and it's the it's a death knell for the class claims. Right. The class claims had to have been originally pled. They had to be part of the case, and then when the motion case came up for motion for class certification or a motion to strike uh, class allegations in the complaint— and when those kinds of motions are brought and the class allegations go away by virtue of a court order, that's called the death knell doctrine. And the death knell doctrine means that you have an immediate appealable order even though it isn't a final judgment in the case because you may have the individual claims which remain. So the courts have clearly accepted that. That's not even an issue in dispute. But what came up here as an issue of first impression is initially whether or not the granting of a motion Uh, to strike class allegations constitutes a trial under the meaning of the Code of Civil Procedure so as to mean that if it comes back from the Court of Appeal, you have a whole new action and a whole new five years. And, of course, what happened in this case is that the class allegations had been struck, the matter went up to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal, in another opinion, overruled the, the striking of the class allegations and brought the case back as a class action. So now the case is returned to the court and going forward as a class action. But the um, at that point, the five years, even with the tolling that's involved in during the pendency of the appeal, the five years had already 
lapsed. Well, let's be careful about that. It isn't that it lapsed when it came back. It's that there was tolling while it was on appeal, right? That's right. And then, for whatever reason, the lawyers in this case continue to litigate the case for an extended period of time, and the five-year, including the tolling period, the five-year ran. That's right. So the issues here in this appeal were whether or not the, that pretrial order dismissing the class claims, whether that death knell uh, of the class claims here qualifies as a trial for purposes of the five-year rule, because why is that important? What, what would a trial do in terms of the five-year rule? Would reinstate the uh, new action and reinstate the five years. So in that single issue, the court held that a motion or a decision on the class allegations is not a trial and you do not reinstate when it comes back from the Court of Appeal. So what's the next argument that the, the plaintiffs raise in this So case? the second issue is whether an appellate decision reversing a death knell order, like an order dismissing all class claims, triggers a three-year extension under the five-year rule. So that would be a, a case where um, an appellate decision that comes back and that completely changes the judgment in the case, not as a new trial, but changes the judgment, gives you a three-year um, uh, lease on life, so Extension, to Extension, yeah, uh, regardless of where you are. Also an issue of first impression in class actions and also ruled against the plaintiffs in this case. That's right. Ultimately, they concluded that the death knell order does not count as a trial, nor does it trigger, uh, nor does its reversal trigger a five-year extension. Is it interesting enough for the California Supreme Court to take a look at? I don't know. Uh, I don't think so. It doesn't seem like it's that hot of an issue that they're going to take up and they're going to look at, but one never knows. It's purely procedural. And the cautionary tale here in this case and in a number of other cases that are out there in the recent years is watch that five years because it's a solvable problem for, for you, the lawyer, and it's a huge problem if, if it, you let it go by. Next, we have a UIM coverage issue when it comes, uh, comes up under an umbrella policy. And the case is Melissa Komorski versus Farmers Insurance Exchange. And this came down uh, from the sepa- second appellate district, originated in Los Angeles, actually. So the facts in this case are pretty simple. There was a, it was actually an uninsured motorist, not underinsured, but that really makes no difference or distinction here, uh, where there was an uninsured motorist who struck and killed the plaintiff's mother in, a, in an accident. There was a, a primary policy, an initial policy, that one of the farmer's companies had issued um, with UM coverage, and then there was an umbrella policy that truck issued, which is another one of the farmer's companies. So there is a statute under insurance code 11580.2, which says that under a primary auto policy, and Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, um, your heirs will be entitled to uh, coverage or, or benefits if something happens to you, like in a wrongful death action. Right. 11580.2 is the insurance code section that, that governs almost all UM, uh, UIM issues. And it doesn't, what it says is it doesn't matter what the policy says, is that the heirs of someone who's killed as a result of a UM um, accident have the right to make a claim under the policy regardless of the policy language. And so there wasn't any dispute about the primary policy here. The dispute uh, really involved the truck umbrella policy. And the truck umbrella policy um, provided extension of the UM coverage but it had very specific language about who could make that claim. 
That's right. And uh, the specific language named, I believe, uh, a family member or insured Her, person. It actually, it actually named specifically the decedent's husband, who was not the father of the claimant. And it said there that the policy only covered uh, the, the named insured, and the named insured there was the decedent and her husband, and the court held that only the husband had the right to make the claim. So what the plaintiff argued in the case was, well, it doesn't matter because of insurance code section 11580.2. As an heir, the policy language doesn't govern. The fact that I'm an heir governs. And the court said, no, this is an umbrella policy. An umbrella policy doesn't have to follow form with respect to the primary policy, with respect to the code, they can actually say whatever they want about who has the right. So in this instance, the policy said, I found the actual language, payable to you and any other insured under this policy, which would be very narrow compared to the 11580 language. But the Court of Appeals said, doesn't matter. It can be that narrow. 11580.2 does not modify um, the umbrella policy. And what's interesting in this case is that the second husband died during the pendency of the litigation, but because he died during the pendency of the litigation, his heir was able to step into his shoes and still recover, but because the daughter wasn't a named insured of the policy, she had no standing. That's right. So what's our final case? So our final case is about PAGA and claim splitting. It's uh, Zakarian versus the Men's Warehouse, um, it came down in March of 2019, also was um, in uh, L.A. Superior Court as a trial court. Second DCA, and uh, this case is extremely well-written. It's an extremely well-written case. If you deal in PAGA, um, I highly recommend that you read it uh, because it deals with an ongoing issue of a split of authority. There's a case currently pending before the California Supreme Court called um, Lawson, and there's a similar case which is came to an opposite result called Esparza. Esparza. Yep. And both of these issues dealt with claim splitting in the context of PAGA. So let's initially start talk about PAGA and why you can't shunt bring an arbitration based upon a PAGA claim. So I think we, we talk about PAGA in almost every episode we do, but um, PAGA is the Private Attorney General Act, which allows for a private citizen to step into the shoes of the um, state and bring an action against a uh, defendant, against an employer. Uh, it's typically in the employment context. And even in the employment context where there's an arbitration clause, PAGA claims are not subject to arbitration. That's right. And it's a representative action, by the way. It, it, not a class action, so you don't have to satisfy the class action elements, um, but it is a representative action where you are seeking these penalties on behalf of all aggrieved employees. Not the class, but it's really kind of the same thing as the class, but it's called all aggrieved employees as opposed to a class. But the California Supreme Court, in a case called Iskanian, held that PAGA claims are not subject to arbitration because they're actually being brought on behalf of the Attorney General and the people of the state of California, so it's not subject to arbitration. But in this claim, they were bringing a PAGA action that covered both um, underpaid wages and civil penalties flowing from the underpaid wages. So they were both PAGA claims. But what the defendant argued was that the underpaid wages is really an individual claim to the employees, even if you put a PAGA uh, caption or heading on it. 
and the the penalties is really the claim being brought on behalf of the government. So the former should be subject to arbitration, the latter should not. And what the court here held was that's really claim splitting. They're and, trying to split a claim. And you can't do that. You can't split claims. So the employer here tried to analogize to some other types of relief that are not traditional employment claims um, where this type of splitting is permissible. Um, it, it argued that in UCL cases, in CLRA cases, these types of splitting, or it's not splitting, you can have two different tracks and some parts of it can be compelled to arbitration. And the Court of Appeal here said, that's not the same. Individual uh, CLRA and UCL plaintiffs sometimes wear two hats um, in, in seeking to, one, on, on the one hand, enforcing their individual rights, and on the other hand, enforcing the rights of the public. But in a PAGA case, um, the plaintiff, the employee that's bringing the bringing public claim, is always wearing one hat. Um, they're always just focusing on one thing, which is um, their ability to seek penalties against the um, employer uh, s- stepping into the state's shoes. So there's only really one interest here. Right, but the, the interesting issue here is who does the money go to? Uh, in this case, they seem inclined that the money should go to the state as, as well as to the employees. Uh, other cases have held that the money goes to uh, only the employees. Uh, but really, where we come out with a split is that Esparza, the Esparza case, um, which is not on appeal in the California Supreme Court, the Esparza case held that you can split the claim that you can arbitrate the underpaid wages and PAGA the uh, – did I just invite – did I just make PAGA a verb? You can PAGA the – We could uh, use it as a verb. Yeah, sure. You could PAGA the penalties. So you could submit the, the, the penalties to PAGA. That's Esparza. Uh, Lawson held exactly the opposite and also held that the money was individual and needed to be paid to the employees and presumably his coworkers. Um, and Lawson is the case that's currently pending before the California Supreme Court. And ultimately, the Court of Appeal in this case said, we agree with the logic in Lawson, but we don't agree that the allocation um, of all the money should go to the individual employees. So stay tuned for Lawson coming down from the California Supreme Court. Uh, you'll see what it ultimately has and what effect it has on the Sakarian case. Can you cite Sakarian now? Sure, you can cite it, but I think if you're careful, you have to footnote Lawson and and note that it's pending before the California Supreme Court. Yeah, you should cite check it and find out what happened with Lawson if you're trying to do this down the line. But but for the time being, I was going to say Zakarian's a great case. Um, You should take a look at it, and that's something that's very helpful if an employer that that you're suing on behalf of someone's trying to compel arbitration. Do you think that ultimately they'll give the state as penalties in the men's warehouse case coupons to men's warehouse so their employees can go to men's warehouse to shop? Well, I, I would hope so, you know, as, as, you know. Do do I get one if they do that? No, no, Sean. No, it's only for employees. Okay. At men's Maybe warehouse. I should pick up a shift there. Okay. Yeah. You do that. It, yeah. might, it might supplement your income. I, that w- it would be helpful. So it that's all helpful. we got this week. Um, yeah, that's all we got this time and uh, we hope you enjoyed it. So again, if you're 
Um, if you get a chance, please subscribe to the podcast. Um, Let us know if you have questions about today's cases, if you have questions about any of the topics we're covering, or you'd like us to cover any other types of cases. Uh, we'd be happy to consider that. We'd also ha- always be happy to discuss these with you um, offline. And if you have any uh, feedback for us, you can comment or you can review us on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to us on all the other platforms where you listen to us. And you can find us on social media at Cabotech LLP, or you can go to our website at kbklawyers.com. We'd love to hear some feedback, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, this is Brian Cabotech and Sean Karnikian from Cabotech LLP and Civil Action.